the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution, an economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Bear SAGE Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Klass. And on today's, folks, uh, today's show, folks, we are doing requests for proposals, avoiding the winner's curse. Welcome, Ed. Hey, Ron. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. You know, I... We don't mention that Reagan quote enough, that and how inspirational that really is. And uh, I, I, we, you know, we have guests on and stuff, and they hear that nobody's ever made mention of it. But I just want to mention it that how how what a great quote that is, and how it just keeps me moving forward. I was re- and was reminded of it because I wanted. There's one thing I wanted to ask you: Have you watched the TV show The Americans? I have not. You you totally should. Okay. Totally should. It's about okay. it's about uh, Soviet spies, KGB spies. Yes, that, uh, I've heard of it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They, they play they play. You know that the, that they're they're a married couple in the Washington D.C. area, right. and you know they have they have a fourteen year old and a, an eleven year old, and somehow manage they figure out how to go out and kill people at night. I mean, it's just <laughs> and, and it takes place in the seventies, eighties. Is that the eighties? Right. right. The, the, the 80s. late. It's the early eighties. It starts with it starts with that's what the reminder was with with Ronald Reagan being elected president so that's okay. that's what the connection was no i've heard it's really good uh, it is really good i'm yeah. two seasons in my my wife started watching it first but now now i'm, I'm into it and i'm uh, two seasons in so it's good it's, stuff that was my next question it's been on for quite a while right what, what it season? is yes yeah so i think it's it's about to go in it to its fifth season, fifth season and then they've already announced that season number six is the final season so which is good i like it when tv shows have like a clearly defined end so i'll be it'll be and it will be very interesting to see how they wrap this up because obviously the fall of the berlin wall and uh the, the the downfall of the soviet union i don't know if they'll ever they, they'll get that far in history but it would it will just be interesting to see what they do with it Sure, sure. That's great. Hey, Ed, you've also got some other news. You've been working on a new portion of the Soul of Enterprise website. Yeah, so we, we, we should have should should be up and running. And I think we're gonna put it up back up under live events, but we'll we'll figure that out. It'll either be calendar or live events or something. And what it's gonna be, it's gonna show all of the places where you can hear 
me or Ron either live or on some kind of a webcast that's publicly available. And so, you know, a lot of these are paid events, so you might have to have to have to fork over some dough to who to, to to see us. But if you're interested in participating in some of our our live events, uh, we'd be happy to have you there. So just go on out to the Soul of Enterprise, take a look there, uh, look at the show archive, but then also the live events page, see what's going on. And it will also have, by the way. And this was the really cool part, Ron, that I started playing with. Our, what our anticipated show titles are for probably usually six to eight weeks in advance. So <laughs> if you've got any questions or something on what it is that we're doing or if, if there's there's something that a, to- a topic that you might suggest that you'd want us to, to talk about, um, that would be a, a good way for you to go and, and see what we're, we are going to talk about and even make some suggestions or questions that you might have surrounding those topics. So go take a look at that today. Yeah, I like it too, Ed, because you made it so you can view it by calendar or by event or or whatever. It's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a neat little cal- plug in calendar that I found. So so cool stuff. All right, but what about propo- requests for proposals, Ron? The bane of the existence of salespeople, especially or we're actually rainmakers in in the professional services business. They're called. I hate requests for proposals. Hate them. I do too. I, I advise firms not to do them um, because it, I think it just subsidizes dysfunctional buying behavior, right? <laughs> Isn't this a point that was made uh, by Mahan Khalsa that all we've done is is grow up with dysfunctional buying behavior because of dysfunctional selling behavior? Yes, yes. The story he opens his book with, the, which it, he said he was taught by an old-time salesperson. They were going selling in, in Manhattan, and they you know, got to the to point where they're trying to get into a building. So he would he would ring, ring a doorbell on like the top floor, and he would say, Western Union, <laughs> right? <laughs> and they would, they would buzz him up, right? And then he would like knock on the door. And you'd be like, oh, yes, Western Union. No, no, no. It's, I wasn't Western Union. This is Lester Newman. My name is Lester <laughs> Newman. <laughs> and, and he would you know, go into his sales pitch. And that was like his introduction into dysfunctional selling. But you're, but you're right. He does then immediately talk about how this then created this whole, I think it's a cottage industry and uh, of, of creating requests for proposals to really insulate the buyer uh, and the seller from one another, which is which is madness in the end. And of course, the place where this is most prevalent, of course, is our favorite government. But we'll we'll get into that as we we'll get talk into that. Yeah. yeah, it it they often are used as a club to extract concessions from the current provider, which is kind of annoying. I mean, you know, the whole column fodder, right? Yeah. Idea that yeah. uh, they're just you know they're just using it to they have no intention to switch their current supplier. They're just going to go to the current supplier and go, can you match this lowest bid that we got? And most of the time, especially in professional firms, I can't speak for other industries, but a lot of the times the firms will match it Mm -hmm. or even beat it. And I, that is just insane. The, the other thing Ed, is from the, from the buyer's perspective, sometimes it makes me think about this, you know, it's Murphy's law of combat, combat that never forget that your weapon is made by the lowest bidder. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think Colonel Searfoss even Searfoss said this uh, in his book. He said, you know, you're sitting on top of that space shuttle, and you're getting ready for the launch, you know, and you're sitting there going, "This thing is made by a compendium of the lowest bidders." Yeah, <laughs> not, not not what you want to be thinking about. <laughs> no, no, I'd probably put my mind on something else actually at that point. 
<laughs> so, but but you but you have a fascinating story about this, Ron. Right? Somebody wrote wrote you an email and and asked about this, and and it ended up like kind of the reverse. You want to just quick tell that story? Well, yeah, I didn't have plans to talk about that, but you're right. The uh, the guy wrote to me and said, uh, you know, he was asked for a request for a proposal. Most people came in at seven hundred and fifty thousand. You know, well, roughly. Because they were guided to 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 be at seven fifty, right? Right. That was kind of communicated as the budget or whatever, right? Whatever it was, um, and somebody, the the person, the firm that won came in at what was it, one point two million? One point two million, right? And won the business because they differentiated themselves because they didn't meet the budget, which. <laughs> Yes. yes. And, and of course, we're going to get into this when we go through all the different strategies that you can deploy if you have to do RFPs. Um, that's certainly one of them is offering options. But Ed, I wanted to get your take on this. What do you think about charging for an RFP? I mean, let's face it, you're, ask, you're, you're being asked to compete and that's got value. So why yeah. shouldn't you charge for it? And and have you ever seen anybody do it? I've seen people try to do it. I've seen people talk about it. I, I, and and yes, they have. Uh, the, the, the huge challenge is, though, Ron, I think this is a positioning issue, especially in the industry that I'm in or, or have been in, which is you know software implementation, let's call it. And it's it's the fact that far too many partner organizations position themselves as, as software salespeople. Mm-hmm. Even though they really should be positioning themselves as professional firms that sell projects that happen to do software implementation, right? right? And I think that that it it does really get to a a positioning issue more than anything else. But that said, yes, all of the time there's there's people who who are given these requests for proposals and and told you know that they've got to j- just submit the blind bid and. You know, I always say, and we'll, well, I'm sure we'll talk more about this strategy, but unless unless you can have a conversation with another human being, I would not participate, right? Yep. At least at least a 15-minute phone call with, you know, and, and I would usually couch it in, look, I think, I believe I have a fiduciary responsibility to, to talk to whosoever budget this is coming out of, and I just need 15 minutes with them. And then after I get 15 minutes with them, I'd be happy to, to perhaps fill out your RFP. Right. No, that that's great advice. And I don't you have a statement, something like it would be presumptuous of us to Yeah. You know, to offer yeah. that's another great line. Uh, yeah. that you it can would use. be presumptuous of us to just fill out this RFP blindly without first talking to someone who 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 really understands what's going on. And look, some some dysfunctional buying organizations will just say, Nope, it's in the RFP. Nope, it's in the RFP. Yep. Oh, no, I've heard that. I've heard that quite a bit. Uh, and I have seen some accounting firms charge for uh, proposals, uh, mm-hmm. not not to governments, uh, but they. And, and it's interesting, Ed, when you charge for something, right? You make you find ways to make it more valuable. So mm-hmm. it, it might in, it include some diagnosis, right? So getting back to the idea that prescription without diagnosis is malpractice, then that that's one way you can make it valuable. Because as you like to say, your diagnosis is, is top of the value curve. And we right. tend to oh, give absolutely. it away, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I, I I think it's possible to to charge for it, or or maybe even state that policy, and then try and think of ways that can differentiate it. Because another thing that I love that Mahan says is the way you sell, and and I would add to that propose 
is indicative of the way you solve. Yes. Yeah, one of the most profound things that I've ever heard heard him say, and I think it's in, in the book, Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play as well, how you sell is an indicator of how you will solve. And it, it, it really and it really is true. I, I mean, I, I, that the fact that the fact that if you're if you seem to be constantly desperate for for sales, then in the consulting experience that they have, you will end up being a supplicant in the consulting experience rather than a peer. Right. And, and I think that's a dangerous place to be for a consultant. So. And, you know, if it, and this kind of goes back to Joe Pine's work in the experience economy, and this is just is always stuck in my head because it's such a contrast. He says, you know, compare walking into a Disney theme park to a Disney store in the mall. Mm-hmm. The, the mall experience is, is you know, it, it comes nowhere near the experience of a park. And his theory is that's because they don't charge for it. If you had to pay to go into a Disney store, it would be an experience worth having. And mm-hmm. I see that even just around here in, in Napa, especially where they started to charge for wine tasting. Now, part of that was, you know, keep the riffraff out. But right. also, since they've been doing it, they found ways to enhance the experience. You know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe you get the glass or, or you can t- take off the equivalent of in the gift shop or from a w- bottle of wine or whatever. I mean, there's ways that they've enhanced the experience, but it just seems that if you charge for something, you find ways to make it more valuable. Yes. Well, just going back to Disney, though, in, in, in a way they do. They don't charge for entry into a Disney store, but they do charge for parking at downtown Disney, which... And this, and I, I, this, this hit me. I don't know. I had been, I had gone to a downtown Disney in a couple different places. You know, the one in Florida, the one in California, and it, suddenly it hit me at some point that downtown Disney equals mall, and I had never, I had never realized that because <laughs> yes. they, they had, they had actually created a different experience. I'm like, oh, this is downtown Disney. Then I'm like, holy cow, this is actually just a mall that I had to pay an incredible amount for parking at. Okay. Yeah. Cause you can go there and not hit the theme parks and, and spend a lot of money. <laughs> right. Right. Well, Ed, this is great. And when we come back, we're going to get into the winner's curse, folks. But in the meantime, we'd like to remind you that you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Please check out the soul of enterprise.com. Check out the archive page for all of our shows and also uh, the new calendar page where you can see where Ed and I will be uh, doing talks and other events there. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. 
Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back here on The Soul of Enterprise. We are talking about strategies for dealing with RFPs, requests for proposals, sometimes requests for quotation, another way to you'll, you'll hear it said. But Ron, there's a there's a thing that uh, that a lot of pricers talk about, especially I think it's uh, uh, Holden and Nagel, right? Talk about this the notion of what's called the winner's curse. Could you uh, explain that for us a little bit? Yeah, and it's actually a concept from economics, um, mm. which is great. You know how economists think about these things. Uh, but if you've ever felt that you know you've won a bid and you turn out to be a loser because <laughs> right. the business is worth just more than you know uh, it's just costing you more money um, mm-hmm. or it, it's mostly because think about it if you win a bid that means all the other people you know believe the engagement had less value because mm-hmm. <laughs> they priced it higher and so the only RFPs that buyers accept are the ones you probably shouldn't make in the first place but the technical definition Ed, of this is that the winner's curse is the more bidders there are, the more likely you will lose money on every job you win, even if on right. average you estimate cost correctly and both you and your competitors set bids that include a reasonable margin of profit. Here's the reason why. The yep. bids you win are not a random sample of the bids you make. So especially when there's a lot of bidders in the market up against you, you're, you're, you're likely to uh, overestimate the profit potential or underestimate the cost to serve. Mm-hmm. So Nagel and Holden, in their book, The Strategy and Tactics of Pricing, said what you want to do with every proposal that you are going to propose on is to add a fudge factor. And they said, yes, this will reduce the number of bids you win, but it will also ensure that you ultimately won't regret having won them. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important point, though, and I think that the ma- the math supports you behind that. Now, there is an assumption in there, and I just want to challenge challenge that assumption. And and maybe it, this is in industries that you see more of the accounting space. But the assumption is that they always select the lowest bidder, and I yes. don't know if that's always the case. I, I do not believe that's the case. I I've seen it's been my experience where the buyer will actually toss out the lowest or maybe even, you know, the bottom two or three lowest Mm -hmm. bids thinking, oh, you know, these people are either idiots or this is some elaborate bait and switch or they're going to trigger change requests or or whatever uh, and they don't trust it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good point. That that is a good point. And I think it really, it, it, it screams for another strategy to avoid the winner's curse, 
which is offering options. And I know yes. we're going to talk about that, but 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 that is another factor that can that can up your chances as well. Yes, and one one of the books that you've recommended for years on this with re- respect to RFPs is um, a- Adam Brandenberger and Barry Nailbuff's book, Coopetition. And I'm just going to quick quote from that, and then we'll go into. They have like eight different strategies that you could take, but they say there seems to be a natural impulse to offer competition for free. This was your your point earlier. After all, that is what business people are supposed to do, is it not? You want a bid? I'll give you a bid. The right question to ask is, how important is it to the customer that you bid? If bidding is so important, then you should get compensated for playing the game. And if it's not so important, then you are unlikely to get the business and even less likely to make money. So you might want to consider, uh, might want to reconsider bidding at all. And I think that that is a fantastic point, that if it's really valuable to the potential customer, well, then, then they are more likely to want to pay for the RFP piece. And if they're not, well, then it's clearly not a value in the first place, so time to move on. <laughs> and it just turns it into a real economic exchange, doesn't it? Because then you set a price on it and then you find ways to make it a more valuable experience. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I, ha- and I have seen people, like I said, I have seen some people do this. What they, One of the ways that they do do it is they couch it as it's not really the RFP. It, they might be doing a, a project initiation engagement. Right. Mm-hmm. So, it, so they're not getting paid. They're not getting paid for, in, in my case, the sale of software plus the project. They're just getting paid for in ha- properly initiating the project inside the cu- the customer's organization. And they'll even say things like, "Look, we will just help you properly initiate this project." And perhaps go through a cost benefit analysis and a feasibility analysis and even cr- the creation of the project charter. And then at that point. You can continue to use us, or you can move on to somebody else. But we have, you know, we have we have a a, a a price for project initiation engagements, and here's what it is. And I I think that's one of the ways that people, at least in the software implementation space, the technology space, have been able to get around the RFP uh, blockage, that if you will. Mm, mm, that's very good. And and that book, by the way, had Coopetition by Adam Adam Brand. Brandenburger and Barry Nailbuff is a great book, by the way, and this is just uh, obviously a, a piece of it where they talk about proposals, but they talk about these eight hidden costs of doing mm-hmm. RFPs, yeah. and and I think these are great, so I just kind of want to go through them. We'll, we'll try and do this pretty quick, but the first one is there are better uses of your time. It's a point <laughs> I love I love to make, right? I mean, we're we're so busy attracting, trying to get new business that we're kind of ignoring and putting at risk the relationships with our best customers. Right. And since the AICPA and other uh, companies have, have found that it costs three to eleven times more uh, to acquire a customer than it does to hold on to an existing one, you know, obviously we should spend at least half our time or half our marketing budget on existing customers, not trying to going out and chasing new ones. So that I is think- such a great point. That is such a great point. And I think that, that one of the big marketing misses for so many professional organizations is the concept of, of marketing to your current customer base. And I'm not talking about just sending them out a monthly stupid newsletter, right? right. I'm talking about actually marketing to them so that they begin to understand what it is that you do in total, and maybe not just the piece of the pie that they got from you the first time. And and make investments in that relationship, you know, the quote-unquote mm-hmm. non-billable time. Why is it when a customer becomes 
uh, you know, a customer that every minute now has to be billable. <laughs> Whereas yeah. before we got them, we'd, we'd spend all the, this time doing RFPs and, you know, taking them to lunch or ball games or whatever. But boy, once they become a customer, it's kind of like now they're in hell and they get yeah. billed for every minute. So yeah. I, I love that point. The second point they, uh, hidden costs they point out is when you win the business, you lose money because chances are you're attracting the type of customer who's, who's very, very price sensitive. And those are the least loyal type. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're not likely to gain a long-term relationship, or I shouldn't say not. You're less likely to gain a long-term relationship out of somebody who's come in through an RFP process. That makes a lot of sense. It, it's kind of like you know when the cable companies or the cellular companies offer you the new you know my uh, churning. So, yeah, churning, churning, yeah, the churn yeah. is unbelievable. The third hidden cost is the incumbent can retaliate against you. So they point out, and this is a great point: your win is obviously someone else's loss. And if it's a bad customer, then you've already made a mistake. But if it's a good customer, the incumbent is going to retaliate somehow, mm-hmm. right? Maybe they're going to come after one of your best customers or hit you in a market where you're particularly strong. And then all you've done is you've taken, you know, two high margin customers and turned them into two low margin customers, which is a lose-lose scenario all the way around. Yeah. Yep, yep. No, that that is a terrific one. What and else, Ron? The fourth one is your existing customers will want a better deal, right? It's it, chances are pretty good in some industries that your RFP price will will go public. <laughs> you know, it'll it'll make the rounds in the industry, and then some of your existing customers now might be at risk of leaving you, feeling that hey, you've overcharged us all this time. So we're back to that churning thing, right? So right. they want you to ask: Is winning this one job worth? that risk. And that's a really good point. The fifth one is that the new customers will use the low price as a benchmark, (laughs) right? And then again, you know, this idea that we can go in low and then raise the price over time, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. See, see, See our show on the three pricing strategies and penetration pricing. Absolutely. Now, the sixth one is the competitors will also use your low price as a benchmark, right? So they'll start to... to do that, and then they might be able to use future RFPs against you at that same price. Mm-hmm. Um, the seventh one is it does not help to give your customers, competitors, a better cost position. This one's fascinating, Ed. If, if your future is tied to Boeing, <laughs> you don't want to help Airbus get a lower price. Say you're, say you're their marketing agency. Right. You don't want to, get, you don't want to give Airbus a, a lower price. Because now, you know, unless you have a very good reason to believe you can get Airbus's business, um, all you're doing is making Airbus stronger relative to Boeing. It's a very interesting, subtle point, but yes, often one's not thought about. Right. Yeah. So you and they say they wrap it up by saying you you actually help help your competitors' customers and thereby hurt your own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because remember your your future and your prosperity and destiny is tied to that of your customers. So don't mm-hmm. give their competitors, you know, if you work for Coke, don't give Pepsi a better, you know, price or something like that. And the last one is do not destroy your competitors' glass houses. And and of course, you know, this whole book talks about and, and destroys the idea of zero sum mentality, right? That's very simplistic and all of that. But right. they say if you become very aggressive against your competition, uh, now they have no reason not to come after you. You've given them every incentive to launch a self-destructive price war. 
And so realize that if your competition is making more, uh, now it has more risk of getting into a price war with you. In other words, <laughs> your prosperity is somewhat tied to your competition. If they're doing well, they're not going to necessarily come after you or your customers. Right. And might might just be an indication that you're in a business in, in, in a wrong business segment or you need to, to, to innovate more and create some new stuff. Right. Because you're, you're starting to be a, a bunch of dinosaurs competing against one another. If, if that's if that's what it's comes coming down to. I wonder if what, what uh, Tim would say about this, the advertising space, if that's one of the things that they're they're seeing seeing uh, happening. Well, you know, it's interesting, Ed, because in that world, unlike, say, McKinsey consultants, um, they're conflicted out. If they're the advertising agency for Coke, <laughs> Pepsi won't go near them, which I right. find fascinating. In, in, if, if you're McKinsey, that's a competitive advantage because sure. obviously you know something about the beverage industry in the marketing world. It'll kill you. Wow. Which doesn't make any sense. And the companies like Procter & Gamble, they recognize that, that that's kind of stupid, but it's just this holdover practice that agencies have had for the longest time. It's very bizarre. And is it the is it the agencies that are holding back on that, or is it the customers who don't want you doing work for a competitor? I, I'm not sure, you know, chicken and egg. I'm not sure where it started yeah. on which side Tim would know. My guess is it started with the with the client side, you know, the customer saying that. Um, right. But but some of them, the more enlightened ones like Procter & Gamble, have started to question it and say, hey, wait a minute, why shouldn't we go after a marketing agency that – you know, has consumer product experience, even though they might work for J and J or whatever. Right. They, right. they hire McKinsey, <laughs> and McKinsey. Works <laughs> they all hire McKinsey. Yeah, yeah they, the, and they work with all their competitors. So, just fascinating stuff. But I love these eight hidden costs. I think they're they're absolutely brilliant. Um, they are. Th- this is a this is a book I highly recommend. So, um, Ed, I know we're up against it, but I want to come back too and talk about uh, some other strategies that uh, firms can deploy. And I want to get your take on the economic buyer. And okay. should we have to confront or deal with the economic buyer before we do a proposal? So I'd love your opinion on, on that. But in the meantime, folks, I'd like to remind you, send Ed or myself an email at asktsoe at verisage.com. Follow us along on Twitter at hashtag asktsoe or at ask TSOE and uh, we are monitoring that live so if you have a question for us shoot it to us and now we want to hear from our sponsor the future of online tv is here View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. 
The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're doing requests for proposals, also known as tenders in some countries, uh, avoiding the winner's curse. And as I wanted to ask you, it's a pretty controversial topic, at least uh, in my experience. There's some consultants who say quite strongly and emphatically that if you're not dealing with the economic buyer, the person who can say yes, you know, shake your hand and, mm-hmm. and, and issue you the check or sign your agreement or whatever, then you're not dealing with the economic buyer and you should avoid proposals or, or any other type of contact because you're just wasting your time and you could end up being column fodder. What's your take on this? I, I agree. I agree. And I, I think it's Alan Weiss who's got somewhere I, I saw three, three great questions for, first of all, understanding if you truly are dealing with the economic buyer. And that if, and one of them, I think you're right, is something about if we can't do business on a handshake today, then clearly you're you're not talking to the right person. Right. Who should I Who uh, that, should I be talking to? <laughs> right, right. Right. But but I I will say this. I I I would say no, and the, uh, and and I would not feel comfortable with that. And I think the type of co- consulting that I tend to do lends itself toward that never really being the situation. I'm always usually I'm talking to at least someone who. Has some purse string uh, responsibility, right. so I, I wouldn't rule it out for everyone because uh, I get it depends on on the the, the industry, I suppose. But but it, it, I would feel really uncomfortable about it, really uncomfortable. Yeah, I've become more hardline on this. You know, people push back on this. Well, we have to deal. We have to do proposals. You know, it's a it's a charity, and they have a board, or it's a government, and that's just the way. And I understand that, but I think this should be the default attitude maybe of the pricers and and then you better give them a very good reason why you want to you know waste resources doing these proposals if we're not right. in front of the economic buyer because the other risk is if you don't know the criteria that the buyer is going to use to judge success um, that that <laughs> that's crazy mm-hmm. I want to yeah. know what the, you know what their definition of success is I want to know what their outcomes are not just the deliverables that they tend to put in an RFP Right, right. No, I, I, I agree. I, and it, it, it's really tough because, I, you know, there are certain industries, I guess, where this is completely prevalent. We mentioned earlier, especially when dealing with governments. But, you know, hey, that's one of the reasons why I'm a libertarian is I don't want to see government succeed, so I won't do work for them. 
another great default strategy. So, <laughs> and we've got lots of other RFP strategies uh, as I lay it out in this appendix. And this, by the way, is an appendix uh, from my book. I think it's Appendix mm-hmm. B that uh, comes from my book, Implementing Value Pricing. But, and, and I know we've got some other things to t- chat about in here, but some other strategies that I found that can differentiate you in an RFP is I think the value guarantee is a big one. Right, you, you right. Know, the value. Yep. Yep. I, I think that's really good. I also believe, obviously, offering choices. Uh, those three options are just, you know, it, it changes the mindset even just for a minute. Of, mm-hmm. Should I work with Ed? How should I work with Ed? You know, and, and that's yes. incredibly powerful. It is powerful, and I would just want to say something here that even even if the RFP doesn't call for three prices, submit it anyway. And I've had people then bat balk against me and says, "Well, then I'm not following their their instructions." I said, "I know, but it, it, I I still would go and submit three different prices for three distinct elements." And hey, listen, if if th- that might be a differentiator for you, and somebody pulls that your proposal, uh, you know, out of out of a out of a hat and says, "Hey, at least this one looks a little bit different," um, it's worth investigating. And if it if it's not, if that doesn't strike them, well, it probably is not a good customer anyway. And you've got one of the best stories from one of your your sage partners. <laughs> Thanks for giving yes. me that three option idea. What was that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He he called me up. I don't know about six months or so after taking. I think it was actually our class, Ron. It was we, we, he had t- he had taken either the value price boot camp or the 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 firm of the future symposium, and called me up six months later and said, Ed, I got to tell you the story. I just got got off the phone with a guy who who said, Hey, thanks for the way that you did the proposal where you gave me three options. My boss wanted three options, and now I don't have to call anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, talk about an unintended consequence. Uh, oh. But but what's great about the options too is even though they may buy, buy your cheapest option, they may you know trade up in future years or at a future point in time, and and that's really powerful. And I also think it plays on Mahan Kals's idea that the more creative you are in the proposal and selling stage, um, you know, right. then it makes them think about wow, how how good are are they at solving our problems. Um, if you do know the budget, I think it's important to have an option that maybe comes in at that budget, but always have an option or two that go way over because in my experience, budgets are very elastic and they if are. the customers see the value, they'll, they'll play with the budget, move stuff around to be able to afford you. Shifts up in, into a future year. I mean, there, there's lots of different things that you that they can and, and do do if they really do see that that the value is differentiated for what you have to offer versus someone else. Now, this of course does presuppose that you can different your, differentiate yourself. But but yes, always offer at least one option, at least one option that's significantly over the price. And you know, add another thing that's not talked about a lot, but I'm going to bring it up because I think it's important. Pricers are in charge of the pricing integrity of the firm. So we can focus, you know, on the pricing signals that you send to the competition or the market with your bidding process or your pricing. But what about the signals you're sending internally? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're constantly just putting out a low bid, what's that tell your team members? What's that right. tell the people within your company? You know, and I think if you pr- only uh, propose only based on value, you're sending a very strong signal internally that we know our value. We believe there's nobility in being paid what we're worth. 
and we're not mm-hmm. going to cut our price just to win the next sale. Well, there is, and there's a bit of self-esteem in there. I mean, we've done a show on self-esteem, but, but I think that, that that's that's part of it. I mean, I think sometimes people are so so conditioned into thinking that this is how things have to work, and we've got no choice but to submit our RFP like everybody else does because this is how things are. Or even just even where there's not an RFP process, getting getting paid for your what you now call your sales process, but it's really consulting. And the greatest example of this, Ron, and we'll put a link to this video up because I, I won't be able to do it entirely justice, but there's a great scene from, I think it's season three of Mad Men, where Don Draper uh, meets up with with Conrad Hilton, and he doesn't even realize it's Conrad Hilton at first, and there's <laughs> a, a very funny exchange uh, uh, about that. But then he's, but he he's, but Don Draper says, "Well, you found me. What what are you looking for?" He says, "Well, you know, I'll get, what what do you think of this?" And he shows him ad copy, and Draper, in his smooth, inimitable <laughs> style, says. I don't think you got to the presidential suite by working for free. That's what I think of <laughs> our work. Great right? lines. <laughs> right. And then, and then he says that, you know, Don, this is friendly, right? This is Conrad Hilton says, Don, this is friendly. And Draper responds with another great line, which is, and I love this one, Connie, this is my profession. What do you expect me to do? Love that. And I just, I just love, I just love that, love that line. <laughs> And, I, and look, I look at it this way. They win Emmy Awards for this stuff. Steal their steal lines. Steal their lines. <laughs> yeah, steal the dialogue. Doesn't Connie come back and say, well, Don, I want you to give me one for free. Yeah, he does. He says, I want you to give me one for free. And even better, well, he does give one for free. But all the only thing he gives away for free, really, is that the stuff that Connie has does not work. Like, that's his one for free. Yep, I agree that the stuff that you have in front of you is not good. Right? And... And it's it's interesting because he he says it's there's a picture of a mouse in this thing. He goes, I don't think anybody wants to think about a mouse in a hotel. And the, so the one for free, not only does he show that, hey, I don't think this is good stuff, but he also gives a sample of how his mind works. Yes, which you know, which is genius. And of course, you know that requires Hollywood writers to get right the first time. But you know, steal steal the line about it's my profession. What do you expect me to do? I mean, that's an easy one to just rip out. Yep. No, that's a great point. It's a great scene. Yes, we will definitely put that clip in in uh, the show notes. I love that. Love that clip. Um, the other thing that I see in a lot of RFPs is, you know, the RFP is not about your firm. It's about it's about the value to your customer. Focus on the outcomes. Focus on how it's how your work is going to change them or their business. And I see way too many RFPs that are full of you know bios and. You know the firm's history and all this stuff has it, it says very little about the outcomes to the customer, right? Yeah, and and uh, look, I don't I don't believe in weighing the RFP either. I mean, just <laughs> yeah, sometimes you got to answer the questions, but really focus on the value aspect of things and not not the details of how you're going to go about solving the problem. I mean, because in a way. And I think some companies do this. I mean, I, I haven't seen it per se, but if if you get five or six requests for proposals out there and and people coming to you with with different ideas, I think there are people who then just take those RFPs and then boom, instant free consulting, and then are like, okay, we're gonna fit, we're now gonna solve the problem problem on the own on our own based on what we've learned from these guys. Yes, that's a great point, and I know that specifically applies to the advertising world 
which is why you should need to copyright all of your proposals and make sure that Bingo. your firm Bingo. retains the intellectual property. And, and that's a really key point. And, and there are agencies that, to, that do that, even though that runs contrary to industry practice, but it's slowly starting to change. I think that's a brilliant tip right there. And honestly, I don't care what industry you're in. Copyright your proposal. doesn't yeah. take much to do. Just you, All you got to do is put the copyright symbol down at the bottom of the page, I believe, and, and you're good to go. And I think the other thing that's really important is put a deadline on, on your proposal. I mean, no price should last for forever. If you've ever had somebody come back after a year and say, oh, okay, Ed, well, I'm, I'm ready to start that engagement. And now you're, you know, your capacity's stuffed to the gills and you're going to have to honor that old price. No mm-hmm. way. That, yeah. And, you know, one of our colleagues, Kirk Bowman, who does the Art of Value podcast has kind of tested this and determined that three weeks seems to yeah. be a pretty optimal time. And I, I've used that and I've seen that work. So I kind of like that. Yep, 21 days. Well, Ron, as always, this is just flying by and we're up against our last break. We do want to remind you, go take a look at h uh, www.thesoulofenterprise.com. And that's where we have post of all sh- our show notes and previews. And now our new calendar under uh, up there is going to be. And we have our show archive. Please do email ask tsoe at verisage.com to email both me and Ron and keep those reviews on iTunes coming as well as the of the book out there on thesoulofenterprise.com slash book. Get a hold of that today at amazon.com. And right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about RFPs and avoiding the winner's curse. And Ed, along with getting to the economic buyer, I think it's important to remember that RFPs do not sell. People do. No. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? Just like RFPs don't buy, people buy, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's really important to test your price. Your RFP should not be the first time that your customers have a feeling for your price. No, I think this is in the no benefit way. of having that, like you said, that 15-minute conversation or whatever as a fiduciary mm-hmm. duty, just so you can test the price. Even if it's something innocuous like, well, you know, most of our customers in this position invest X amount and, and, and watch the reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 I th- and that's, that's a good point, by the way. Don't give, give a range, just give an amount. And just just give the high, yep. and just say most of our customers invest this, and then you can even turn it on them and say, "Are we in the ballpark?" But you 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 do want to test the price before we go. You know, Mahan's got another good good suggestion and a good line on on this is is he says you know sometimes wait till toward the end to submit the proposal. Right. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and to the point where they're kind of waiting for it and say, hey, are you going to submit the proposal? And he said, oh, well, yeah, we, we've been we've been waiting for you to call. We love to do the proposal. So send over. And they say, well, send over the proposal. Oh, no, we are the proposal. We come to see you. <laughs> love it. Love it. We are. We are the proposal. <laughs> and, and, you know, the other thing I think in that conversation is. See if you can propose on maybe more of their work. Maybe you're just being asked to do one specific thing. See if there's maybe other things you could be doing for them as well. And if you're if you're asked to match a price, I think it's really important before you even consider doing it that you understand what the scope is, right? Oh, no how, doubt. How many times do firms just blindly match a price or even go below it, but they mm-hmm. don't understand what the scope that the other firm proposed is. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, especially if these proposals, the, the, the RFPs are holding you to, to, to a price and don't have, any, have, have anything in there for change requests. And that's another thing, too, is explain your change request process and the fact that you even do do change requests. And, and, and by change requests, I mean that the, the, a request will be made and then each individual request will be evaluated as to whether or not the additional work will or will not be done so that they, they have, a, and this is what, what you would call, I guess, a price guarantee, right, Ron? That yep. we're giving them the price guarantee and that we were we are not going to do any additional work unless you approve it first. And if we send you a bill for work that is above and beyond what you were expecting, you don't have to pay it. Yep. I love that. I love that. And, and what I love about the purchase request is that request can be made on the firm side or on the customer side. They might Correct. find a scope creep and, and uh, your form even has what's the business purpose for this change, which I love because that's a very subtle way of asking what the value is. The <laughs> yep, last point, time. Ed, is if the RFP is rejected, if you can get to the, because I think you should keep a mortality log, by the way, um, you know, why, why you didn't get proposals. Find out as much information as you can uh, about why you weren't uh, selected. But I think it's also really important to point out, let's just say that you have a 25% market share, then you should technically be losing three out of four of your proposals. This mm-hmm. idea that, you know, we have a 90% conversion rate, I get, that's insane. <laughs> Unless your market share is 90%, you should not have a 90% conversion rate. 
it's just another warning sign of the winner's curse. But the the three questions to ask, uh, preferably the economic buyer, if you do not um, win the proposal is, do you not believe the value we discussed is accurate? Second question would be, do you not believe that we will be able to create that value? And the last Mm -hmm. question is, or do you think you will be able to acquire that value from another firm? I like mm-hmm. those questions because they're all they're all around value. Because a lot of times, firms will tell me, "Oh, we didn't get the proposal because our price was too high." That's never the reason. It's not that your mm-hmm. price was too high; it's the customer didn't see your value or they didn't understand it. I completely agree. And what I like about this syllogism, this series of questions, is that you should you should be the one asking it, and you should not ask this as an open ended question, which is to say, "Why didn't we get this?" Because they'll just they will just say your price is too high. So they will say that, but that's because that's the easy thing to say. It's not because it's real. That's (laughs) right. It gets you off the phone. Your price is too high. All right, done. Thanks. But if you put it this way, if you say, do you not, or did you believe that the value we discussed was accurate? So you're getting that information ahead of time before you're asking about the price, then I think you're much better off. These, These questions are brilliant. They, they really are. And, and Ed, the other thing is, it's the same if a client fires you. <laughs> they, they, you know, if you do an exit interview, they'll tell you, well, your price was too high because they don't want to have this conversation. And no. they want to end it as quickly as possible. So it's never, it's never valid feedback that your price was too high. I, mm-hmm. I just never buy that. It's rarely that unless you're dealing with that 7, 10% of the population that are pure price buyers. Well, and very few people buying professional professional firm firms are very few. I think it's less than that for, for professionals. I, I do too. Every professional would say otherwise, but I that's what I think. Yeah. Do you ever see? Do you, does do you ever hear anybody brag at a you know business event or conference? Hey, I've got the cheapest CPA in town <laughs> or cheapest lawyer in town. No, they they wear the price they pay their professionals like a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. You know, they love to complain about it. Right. Right. Absolutely. Great so, stuff. All, all, you know, the winner's curse is just kind of another reformulation or maybe Baker's Law is a reformulation of the winner's curse. But, you know, bad customers drive out good customers. And right. I think uh, when somebody asks you to propose, you, you kind of take the actuarial axiom of, of adverse selection. If they're in the market for insurance, they're probably the customer you don't want. <laughs> That's what they call adverse selection. Right. <laughs> and actuaries right. are very skeptical of that. So, Ed, that's, uh, those, those are some of our strategies, folks, for dealing with RFPs. And uh, we'd love your feedback, but we will post uh, full show notes on this. And, Ed, we've got kind of something exciting coming up in November. That yes, we do, Ron. We're pretty excited about Yep. We're, this is what, what will this be? This will be the fourth, fourth meeting of, yeah. of Verisage fellows and friends. Yeah, maybe it's fifth, depending on how maybe you fifth. count. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, but 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 cl- th- clearly, the last couple have been called the Verisage Symposium, which we're announcing today. It's going to take place in Dallas, actually in Allen, Texas, right here where I am. We're going to have right some on. some lo- local fun on Friday, November tenth and eleventh. And if you are interested, please shoot us an email, and we'll be sure to get you on the invite list. There will be a price. We have not announced pricing for this event yet, but if you do want to get on the invite list. 
please let us know. We'd love love to have you come by and 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 see us. Uh, and I think our our friend, well, actually, I know our friend Kirk Bowman is going to have an an event before that on art of value. So there's going to be plenty of opportunity for learning that that uh, second week in November here in Allen, Texas. So pretty excited about that. And what are your it's, thoughts on it, Ron? It's November 11th and 12th, right, Ed? The actual um, opened up. To I'm Gap. sorry, the 11th and 12th. Yes, you're right. I was okay. looking at my, my calendar open and it just said Friday, Saturday. No, it's the 11th and 12th. That's that's correct. The 11th right. and 12th, Saturday and Sunday. Mm-hmm. And the Art of Value uh, program is the 8th and the 9th, right? Correct. And there may even be a bundled price, folks, where both... Uh, we're both, or you can do both for one price. But if you're interested, if any of our listeners out there are interested, please email Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. We can send you more information as it develops. And again, this is in November. It's a great way to meet uh, the, the fellows at Verisage and interact. And we just have a lot of fun. And But it's, a, it's also a brain dump too, isn't it, Ed? It is. It's 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 one of the few conferences that I I look forward to because man, we got a lot of smart people in Verisage. Really, really smart people. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I love about it. Well, Ed, what's on the store for next week? We are free riding next week, Ron, and I can't wait. I've got my stack is bulging already, and we still have another week to go. I mean, we're going to have to probably talk about Donald Trump and the health care bill and Trump Trump care. So. <laughs> Yep, and I've got some great stuff, too. So, wow, I really look forward to that, Ed. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people, the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please check out thesoulofenterprise.com. We will post full show notes on our show today about avoiding the winner's curse with your RFPs. Also, you can contact Ed and myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. 